the sets of challenges that we have in front of us are great, but the sets of opportunities are even greater. Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crises. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali is a longtime advocate for social and environmental justice. He is currently the Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation, as well as the founder of Revitalization Strategies, an organization dedicated to addressing climate and economic issues in vulnerable communities. He also serves as a board member for Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Union of Concerned Scientists, the Roddenberry Foundation, and Climate Hawks Vote. Before the National Wildlife Federation, Mustafa was the senior vice president for the Hip Hop Caucus, a national nonprofit and nonpartisan organization that connects the hip hop community to the civic process to build power and create positive change. Prior to that, Mustafa worked for 24 years at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. He began working on social justice issues at the age of 16 and joined the EPA as a student, becoming later on a founding member of the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. In this episode of the podcast, we speak with Dr. Ali about the role faith has played in his work for social justice the need to advance community-led solutions, and the inextricably linked relationship between social justice and environmental issues. Well, welcome to the podcast, Mustafa. It's such an honor to to have you today. I'm really grateful for, for you making the time and, and to meet you virtually. Oh, well, it's an honor to be here with you as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so first, how how are you? How have you been through through this year and the quarantine and kind of all of the changes that we've all been living through? Uh, it's been a <laughs> transformational year. Uh, I'm used to being on an airplane every couple of days all across the planet right. and, uh, you know, being uh, in one place for a long time is good, but also a lot to get used to. And then unfortunately we lost a couple of family members to the virus. So, you know, it just brings it home of how important it is for us to, you know, focus on these issues and all the other contributing factors, you know, that will make climate change even a bigger challenge than COVID-19 has been. Absolutely. And I'm so sorry um, to hear about your loss. It's I can't imagine living through a personal loss as you also grieve for, for the collective loss that, that we've lived through. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and where are you based right now? I'm in D.C. at the moment. Got it. Um, still being able to work from home? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I'm, I'm lots of different places, but no airplanes. <laughs> all virtually i know that's one of the things that has taken gotten used to just staring at our screens for for so much time yeah without a doubt um so i thought maybe we could start off with you sharing a little bit about your background and specifically what do you see as that inception moment um in your long career for environmental and social justice yeah you know i've been really blessed to be you know uh, in the environmental justice movement, civil rights, social justice. I started working on social justice when I was a teenager um, and then environmental justice a little bit later on. And, um, you know, many of the things that have sort of moved me along my journey, of course, one of them is God. You, you are where God wants you to be <laughs> and you have, you can either go easily uh, uh, or <laughs> you can be drug along. Um, so luckily, 
um, you know, I came out of a faith-based family and, you know, we've always been uh, very mindful of whatever the calling is to make sure that you're honoring that. And, you know, just seeing so many different things when I was young and I would ask my father, you know, why are certain situations happening? And, you know, he would then, you know, have, uh, depending on how old I was, you know, different sets of conversations around systemic racism, around disinvestments in certain communities um, and, you know, the marginalization of folks, the dehumanization of folks, both in this country and in other locations across the planet. And um, it gave me an awareness that, you know, there was work that needed to be done in this space. And then also being surrounded by a number of civil rights leaders when I was younger, um, you know, just gave me an appreciation that, you know, change can and will happen. Um, but, you know, that we have to be a part of that change and we have to get engaged and we can't wait um, for it to, uh, you know, just be this natural process. It, it takes our energy. It takes our innovation. It takes our pushing um, in the collective uh, to make real long-standing systemic change a reality. Absolutely. Um, and I wonder if you can expand maybe a little more on on how your faith has informed your work and your work in justice. This is something we have touched on in the podcast before. Um, so if you're comfortable sharing how how your faith and your family values have maybe informed the work that you continue to do today. Yeah, well, you know, faith is just incredibly important um, because, you know, there's a difference between religion and spirituality. You know, spirituality mm -hmm. is that connection that you have with a high, with a higher being, you know, with God. Um, and if you're true to that, then that means that there's responsibility in that relationship. Um, and a part of that responsibility is taking care of mother earth, but it is also a responsibility for taking, uh, you know, care of your brothers and sisters in humanity. Um, and that's just the way I was raised. My parents didn't allow us to identify a problem without also talking about what the solutions were and the role that we had to play um, in those solutions. Um, so I'm very thankful uh, to my parents for giving me a strong grounding um, in, in our responsibility here. Um, and, and sometimes we forget that. And, and you definitely see that, you know, in some of the policy development and policy choices that others will make um, mm -hmm. where humanity, where people's health is not valued at the same level um, as profit. Um, and for me, that means that there is a disconnect between those who say that their work, their actions, uh, their country um, it is founded on certain principles um, and a reflection of what you know God is supposed to look like inside of you and your actions, um, you know, in relationship. You know, we're talking about climate change and environmental issues now, but we could go down a laundry list of social justice issues where people may say one thing, they may say that they have a belief system that mm -hmm. teaches them one thing, but their actions would lead one to believe that there are some gaps um, or some un, uh, unauthenticness uh, in their statements and actions. Yeah, and I think the the most recent, I mean, this year has been an embodiment of, of all of that that you are speaking of, right? Like the bringing to light the mass amounts of suffering through the public health crisis and the murders of African-Americans in this country that sparked a new mass mobilization in demands for racial justice, as well as the economic crisis ensued from kind of the lockdowns from the virus and now um, election concerns and concerns over disenfranchisement. And so it's been a whirlwind of a year. And I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about how these past few months have made you think differently, if at all, about the work and the current moment. Well, when it comes to everyday men and women, um, I would say that uh, I have a renewed faith uh, in humanity, um, because I've mm -hmm. seen so many uh, brothers and sisters from all hues, uh, from all races, um, you know, uh, coming together to fight uh, for justice. Um, you see it in the protests that are happening at this moment um, and have been happening throughout this year. 
um, where folks saying Black Lives Matter and, and not that they just matter, but that we are willing to put our bodies, our time, uh, you know, on the line uh, to make mm-hmm. that a reality. And that's, you know, white brothers and sisters, as well as African-American and Latinx and Asian, um, you know, uh, LGBTQ, um, both wealthy and, and those who, you know, are evolving toward wealth. Um, so that in itself shows that there is a significant cultural shift happening, not just in America, but across the planet, um, where people are demanding justice, especially younger people, but they are also joined um, by those maybe who have been around a, a little bit longer um, and, and saying that the 21st century has to look different than the 18th century, the 19th century and the 20th century. <laughs> Um, because a lot of the actions were looking, you know, like, you know, it was 1940 or 1950 in some instances, 1840 or 1850. Um, so people are, are, are making change happen. They are realizing and understanding that they have power and that they're not going to just give it away, that they are going to hold themselves and others accountable. Um, and, and you see it not only, you know, uh, in relationship to racial justice issues. Um, you also see it in, in, in relationship to climate justice issues and climate change, um, that people um, are saying that, you know, we understand that what folks have been sharing is real um, and that we have to get engaged, that we have to push for change um, and that we have to play a significant role because, uh, evidently, the, the ways of the past were not being effective. Um, so we're going to do some new and different things to make sure that change happens. Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest things that we've seen through these past couple months of mass mobilization, as you say, around the world, is the understanding of the overlapping and intersectional nature of these issues, right? That we are no longer in one lane fighting for environmental justice or economic justice or racial justice, but those are in fact one in the same. Um, how, how do you personally think about the intersection of all of these issues and how the public awareness for that intersection is kind of evolving and, and changing right now? Well, there's an awakening that's happening. You know, if you if you go back to the early days of the environmental justice movement, people mm-hmm. were talking about housing justice and transportation justice. They were talking about economic justice and health justice. They were talking about food justice issues um, and, and a number of other justice-related issues that, you know, the intersectionality of all them come together because when you go into a community, you know, that community could be in India, it could be in Brazil, it could be in the United States. You know, they are multidimensional. Um, you know, there's so many different issues that folks are dealing with and that if you're only going to deal with one issue, then you're going to leave gaps in the process. And when you leave gaps in the process, you leave people vulnerable. Um, and we can no longer do that. The sets of challenges that we have in front of us are great. But the sets of opportunities are even greater. And that's why we have to have, you know, a holistic strategy where multiple voices are a part of the process um, that is, of course, all anchored uh, in community. Because, you know, when we focus on community, when we strengthen community, you know, we strengthen, you know, our cities or our towns. We strengthen our respective countries Um, And, you know, folks are realizing now that, you know, we have to have a holistic strategy and that, as you know, is often said, we're stronger together. And that means no matter what your particular area of expertise is, by partnering with others, um, you know, we can make real change happen. We can leverage uh, and we can make sure that we hold, uh, you know, folks accountable. And you mentioned this briefly before, but it's about the realization that power already lies within people and communities. And something you are quite vocal about is that for the need for locally led and holistic solutions to a lot of these issues, right? Meaning that solutions can't just parachute down from government or other organizations into communities telling them what those fixes are, but in fact, solutions already live with people and communities. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this, why it's so important to rethink the way decisions are made and power is distributed? 
Yeah, so you know, it's getting close now. You know, to about a thousand different communities uh, that I've worked with, both in our country and outside. Mm-hmm. And the most successful, long-standing uh, projects are, are those that are actually led by communities. Those that communities are in the center of the work. Now, you know, there are authentic collaborative partnerships, of course, with lots of different mm-hmm. folks who are part of that because you need all of these different. Um, entities to to be able to make that happen. But, you know, a lot of folks want to operate from this 20th century paradigm where cities or counties have to be the lead. Uh, And in many instances, those cities and counties um, have played, you know, a negative role in what has happened inside of communities, not always, but, you know, way too often. So when we change to a 21st century paradigm, you know, where communities are the central point and where communities are framing out, you know, what they are looking for and then others coming together to help to support that vision and that set of opportunities, then you've got something that can be quite transformative. You know, there are numerous examples across the country. You know, in South Carolina, there's the Regenesis Project that took a $20,000 environmental justice small grant and has leveraged it into close to $300 million in changes. And the community was the central point in that, bringing other partners, of course, together. By the time, I think at last count, there were about 144 partners that were in that space. If you look at work like the Ivanhoe community in Kansas City, once again, you know, you have a community-led organization that was able to create these authentic partnerships with, uh, you know, the city and foundations uh, and others to make real change happen. In many instances, this change is happening in areas where people said that investing in this location doesn't make sense and it isn't going to yield positive results. So people are flipping that old paradigm uh, and saying, mm-hmm. well, yes, it does. And let us show you how it can happen. Um, And and you see it in faith-based examples as well. Um, You know, in Jamaica, Queens with Reverend Floyd Flake um, or Buster, Reverend Buster Soros in Jersey City or or in Chicago with Bethel New Life. I mean, I can literally go down the (laughs) list or I can go into other countries um, and and give examples also uh, in Rio de Janeiro um, with some of the communities who were there who began to you know, create economic opportunities to be a part of clean and renewable uh, types of uh, energy opportunities around recycling programs, so many different things. I mean, across the planet, if we would slow down, if we would honor the voices of communities and make sure that they have the resources and capacity uh, to make change happen, we could do it at a exponential rate because when you have community examples of success, It changes the paradigm, but it also gives other communities across the planet an opportunity to say, there's someone who looks like me. There's somebody Mm -hmm. who's coming from a very similar socioeconomic background, educational background, religious background, who's been able to make real change happen. And if they can do it, I can do it. Right. And that's so important, right? Being able to see those things come to fruition and change actually happen. Um, You mentioned that the massive misconception that environmental justice initiatives or projects are a quote unquote, not a sound investment. Um, Are there any other misconceptions that you see or encounter around environmental justice or social justice work that you think are important to, to dispel? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, one of them that is so glaring uh, and there was intentionality in in the development around it uh, is saying that these people, these communities, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, this is the type of situation that they want to be in. So it's always interesting when you hear sort of, you know, that old way of thinking, which unfortunately still tries to find fertile ground from time to time, because I have never met anyone who, if they had the opportunity to live in a green, green, clean community, um, would choose to not live there, but would rather live next to a coal-fired power plant or an incinerator or waste treatment facility, um, you know, or would rather live, you know, in dilapidated housing or numbers of other types of examples that we could give. But people will will try and convince you that people are in the situation that they're in because of their own doing and not because of the policies and the disinvestment 
uh, that we continue to do in communities of color and, and in lower wealth communities and, of course, on indigenous land. I think that goes back so much to this myth of of individuality, um, will you say, or the pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, um, especially in, in this country, as I've seen it, in how that is just a massive fallacy when you don't understand the history and context of intentional oppression and intentional policymaking that have left some at the margins by design, um, right? And that's something that unfortunately still isn't being discussed at all of the levels that it, that it should be. Without a doubt. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. You know, if people really, and it's not a part of the educational system uh, in our mm. country, to give people the full history of how we got to where we are. So, you know, most people don't know anything about redlining. They don't know anything right. about restrictive covenances. They don't understand how the banking industry uh, and also, you know, the insurance industry and others that there was intentionality um, and, and not providing services and opportunities to many people of color, but most more specifically, African American communities. How you pushed people into certain areas, and once you had them in those areas, then you would disinvest. So their property values um, never grew, or they went down. And once those property values went down, there were less sets of economic opportunities that were willing to move into those spaces. So that meant that negative types of industries or entities would then fill that space because people didn't have any other choice. And then folks will say, well, why didn't the people just move away? Well, if all the wealth right. uh, in your home is stripped away, where do you go? Um, and because you still would have to deal with the mortgage um, or rent or whatever the situation might be. And this was built into our laws. And most folks mm -hmm. are you know, baffled that your own country would do these types of things to you. And that's just you know, a couple of the examples. If we look at our housing laws that were on the books for a long time, you know, they played a huge role and still today in some of the situations that we find certain communities in and our transportation laws as well. Our transportation laws, you know, had a very strong racial component to them where they, you know, ran through certain communities. They extracted wealth from certain communities, dumped wealth off in other communities um, and left pollution, um, you know, in our most vulnerable communities. And, you know, we can go down the laundry list of the things that are supposed to be a part of our social safety net that failed mm -hmm. many communities of color. And even to today, still uh, those remnants still play out time and time again. You know, we saw recently with our current administration, uh, some of the things they were doing around banking laws. Um, and again, trying to make things much more difficult for folks. If you look at the budgets that they propose over the last three years, just stripping out so many necessary programs that would help people to get that leg up, if you will. It's always interesting when you said, you know, <laughs> pull you up by your bootstraps. And the other one they use um, is, you know, all boats rise. Well, not if those boats have right. holes in them. Um, and you can't lift yourself up by the bootstraps if you don't even have any boots. So, you know, <laughs> we have an opportunity to do much better um, and, and also to educate folks about the past so that we don't uh, have to repeat it again. Absolutely. And like you said, it's it's sometimes fascinating to to see people go through the process of that education and just the utter shock, right? If you've never been exposed to the history and, and the realities, um, or you yourself have never lived through the realities of marginalization and oppression in this country, and it's it almost sounds surreal, Um to realize these were the ways intentionally um, that policies and policymaking happened. Um, but you say we have a, a massive opportunity for education, and I agree. Um, I want to learn maybe from you, where, where do you see those opportunities the most right now, specifically scalable opportunities um, for change, starting with education and hopefully all the way through to actual change? Yeah. So, I mean, in our educational systems, you know, starting at very young ages all the way up through college, we need to be building, you know, the right types of curricula, the, the fullness of mm. curricula uh, to make sure that people have that basic information that's so necessary. Uh, we live in an information age. 
So no one should ever say, well, I didn't know. I mean, you literally, all you have to do is pick up your iPhone or whatever your device is uh, and and type in. And then, of course, you got to do your due diligence and and ground truth the information and get it from trusted sources. But it's there at your fingertips. We've got to work with, you know, our agencies, you know, and our foundation. So on our federal and state level, there's education that needs to happen there to make sure that policy is reflective of what is needed uh, and what is demanded. Um, And then from our foundations, there's education uh, opportunities there as well to make sure that the resources that are flowing from those entities, um, you know, is coming from a place uh, of being um, Mm well-versed from lots of different communities. And then for those who are in our entertainment fields, Uh, There's the need also for education so that their platforms that they utilize and millions upon millions of people follow, you know, that they um, have the ability to then frame it out in a way that is helpful um, and is transformative. So on the education side, I mean, it it is limitless um, with what we can do to address uh, the past, um, you know, sets of situations that sometimes intentional, sometimes unintentional, um, and sharing wrong information um, and preparing the future with the information that's going to be necessary for us to transform um, our communities, our economies, and our countries. Right. And I think we've also seen a lot of this reckoning coming from environmental organizations, um, right? Black, indigenous and people of color have long been excluded from environmental policy and conservation, especially the older um, green organizations. I think we saw this most recently with the Sierra Club um, reckoning with its own racist history. So I'm curious how, how you're thinking about this social moment and the need for these change-making organizations and platforms that are mission-driven um, to have these internal re-examinations and, and changes themselves? Yeah. I mean, each of the organizations, you know, they have to look at their history um, and also, you know, do they want to be 21st century organizations? And if the answer mm-hmm. is yes, then there's work that has to happen. Um, you know, and that work comes in lots of dis- different ways. You know, you, you start with their boards, um, you start with their senior staffs, and taking a look at who is a part of that. Um, and uh, if they are not looking like what America looks like and where America is moving towards, um, then they've got a lot of work to do. When you look at the priority setting and the missions, um, then you need to see if it's in alignment with what a 21st century organization is supposed to be about and, and how your resources flow from that organization. Um, and whose voices are part of helping to set the criteria uh, for the, how that happens is another part of the sets of opportunities and responsibilities because your membership base will not grow if it is not in alignment uh, with the changes that are happening inside of our country. Um, so, you know, most of those organizations, they get their resources from a couple of different places. One is from foundations, and we kind of touched on the changes that they have to continue to evolve into. And the other one is from membership bases. Um, And if you expect your organization to not be antiquated uh, and to grow, then you're going to have to address that. And then the other part of it is sometimes resources coming from the federal government or um, also, you know, from corporations uh, and, and, and that type. Um, so if you're not in alignment, you're going to be in a lot of pain moving forward because people are going to hold you accountable. Right. Um, particularly as it relates to your work with the National Wildlife Federation, how do you incorporate human equity and human justice into conservation work, which we usually or typically think of more as it relating um, to animals and wildlife? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of ways that that's going on. You know, people always say, Mustafa, why did you go to the National Wildlife (laughs) Federation? Well, one, there was a letter that came out from many of my mentors and others uh, over three decades ago now talking about those conservation organizations and other big green organizations um, and, you know, the work that they were not doing and how they were being Mm -hmm. a detriment. So I've always liked to challenge 
Um, so at the National Wildlife Federation, we have a full environmental justice analysis uh, that the federation is going through. So that means that um, all of the policies, programs, activities, and budgeting decisions will run through an EJ analysis. And why is that important? Because that same pollution that has been making black and brown uh, and indigenous communities sick and killing people is that same pollution that is impacting national parks, um, is the same pollution um, that is impacting wildlife. So there is a synergistic effect that is going on. And if you are not willing to understand that, you know, we need to be addressing all these issues at the same time, because that pollution is that pollution. Um, and we've been very blessed that the board um, has been almost 100% supportive of that. I think we only had one person who wasn't, um, but 97% of the board was, uh, all the senior staff. And of course, we're blessed that we have this young president by the name of Colin O'Mara, who when he kept trying to get me to come to NWF, he kept uh, having a conversation saying, Mustafa, I want to create a 21st century organization. And I said, you, you sure about that? You know what that means? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I know what that means. And I was like, okay. I said, because, uh, you know, um, there's a lot of work that has to go into that. Um, so, you know, and if you get NWF as an example, to be able to do this properly, which by no means has ever been labeled as a progressive organization, you know, they're, they're pretty much a moderate middle of the road organization. Then all these others who say that they are progressive, um, you know, that say that they're down for the cause, then they have no reason uh, to not be doing very similar types of things to make sure that their structure um, is being authentic um, and making sure that the actions that are coming out and the partnerships that are so critically important um, are being authentic. Um, and we also will have an environmental justice advisory committee um, in the not so distant future that will also help to hold NWF accountable um, and to make sure, you know, that we have real, true, authentic, collaborative partnerships in the work that's going on. Right. And I think something you've mentioned a couple of times that is so crucial and important is the accountability part, right? Because when you say this takes work and is really hard work is because I think we're also way past the time when an organization can put out a statement, a press release, maybe even change their hiring practices and bring in more diverse staff um, into an understanding that change is so much deeper than that. It is what kind of environment are we fostering for the people who actually come in and work for us? And how is that being translated into our programs and our mission and the way that we actually do the work? Um, so it's certainly a fascinating time to be to be experiencing and, and watching all of these happen and, and hopefully continue to to move in this direction. I agree. You know, we've got way too many organizations still, although less. <laughs> so I want to give credit that, you know, there, there's this window dressing, right, mm -hmm. where people will. It's so easy for you to put out a statement and for there not to be any real meaning behind it, where there's no resources behind it where there's no intentionality about real change actually happening because you're doing it because you're in the moment and you're not thinking about, you know, the investments uh, and the long-term structural change that has to happen inside of your organization, inside of your government, whatever the situation, inside of your corporation, you know, whatever the situation might be. Um, so I, I think people are putting themselves, if they're just doing the window dressing, you know, I, I think they're putting themselves in a very precarious situation because people will no longer allow that. Um, you right. will get called out. Um, and I even think that there will be, uh, economic ramifications for you not doing the right thing. Right. Um, and I think that's that's hopefully the mo the movement that we're going towards, right? Is actual real accountability beyond this culture wars that seem to be happening online um, and the, the call out moment that we seem to be also kind of living through that I think relates back to that window dressing on a personal level as well um, as we interact with each other, mostly online. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the challenge, I think, also with just interacting with folks online. One, mm -hmm. I mean, it moves fast. Um, it, sometimes it's hard to ground true stuff. You know, the reality of the situation is that, you know, we got into a lot of the problems that we got into because people would separate each other. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and through that separation, you know, it was easy to, to then dehumanize folks because there was no interaction between groups. Um, and, and when hopefully we get past this COVID-19 moment and, and people are allowed to come back together again, you know, then, you know, as more and more people, especially younger people, you know, they, they've just broke down, you know, the isms, you know, racism, sexism, ageism, all these different isms that, you know, your parents and grandparents, you know, sometimes were anchored to. Um, and, you know, so we've got real opportunities now. Um, and, and so many young people just see each other for who they are um, and, and not necessarily the color of their skin or, you know, what socioeconomic background you come from. And that's what America was supposed to be, um, right. you know, in theory. Um, so let's make that theory become real. Um, and that comes through real, true interactions with each other uh, and also honoring you know, where we come from, what we bring to the table, our innovation and ingenuity and, and all these various things that, that everyone uh, has the ability uh, to, to garner. And that's such a beautiful way of putting it and um, kind of inching closer to to the promise of America, the real promise of equality and opportunity um, that I think we are being called back on so often these days. Yeah, I mean... You know, <laughs> when did Kennedy talked about that shining light <laughs> on the hill, you know, and, and talking about America. I mean, we really, truly have the opportunity now to live up to those ideals, you know, and the Bill of Rights and Constitution and all these other things, even though we know at that time everybody wasn't considered a full human being. But right. we, we know what the aspirational uh, goal was. Um, that we could one day get to. And I think we are now at that moment um, with all of the changes that I'm seeing happen. Um, And of course, as we've said, the changes have not and will not be easy, um, but they are doable and they are happening. Um, So I look forward, you know, if I'm ever blessed to have children, I hope that, you know, by the time that, you know, they're adults, that America will look like it's supposed to look and it will live up to what it says that it is. And then I think you can be a leader, um, you know, um, on the world stage. And it doesn't matter what country we're talking about. If it truly honors its people um, and their voices, um, then I think that that's one of the things that makes you a leader. And until you are willing to do that, um, then you are lacking uh, and one of those aspects that's so critically important uh, in leadership. Absolutely. I think that that's, that's such a critical point that I don't necessarily see discussed um, maybe as often as, as it should come up in terms of America's leadership um, in the world and, and the, the prestigious nature of what should come along with that position. Um, So we've talked a little bit about the opportunities that we have through this current moment and the changes that are happening. I'm also curious, conversely, to hear what are some of the obstacles or or barriers that you see currently to change and to justice? Well, you know, anytime you're talking about change, that means that there are going to be those, um, whether it's a large percentage or a smaller percentage, that are going to be resistant to that. And they're going to do everything that they can um, to stop that change. And in many instances, it is those who have been able to garner wealth uh, and power uh, through subjugation uh, and through other mechanisms to be able to, you know, uh, not allow everyone to grow at the same rate. So, you know, we are in that moment now um, that, you know, people, uh, some people, not all, you know, who have been blessed with wealth are going to use it uh, in a number of different ways to try and stop progress from happening. They will utilize that in uh, the civic process in trying to stop people from being able to vote, uh, to be able to fully engage in the process. You're going to see it around marketing. You're going to see it around the utilization of the, uh, you know, of the World Wide Web, of the Internet, you know, and disinformation. Um, and, you know, you'll see it in, in other ways as well, I'm sure. Absolutely. And again, I think this year has shown us just how nefarious those those things and interventions can be. Um, 
as we gear up to a presidential election and as we battle and fight through all of these issues that we've um, kind of already talked about, you start seeing power pushing back um, on change quite quite insidiously, certainly. Um, I did also want to talk to you um, a little bit about the EPA. So you were at the EPA for 24 years um, and left in 2017. Um, I'm curious if you can share with us what that decision was like for you. And this, this might seem a little obvious, but what was the thing or things that made you make that choice to leave? Yeah, I mean, it was a tough it was a tough choice on one hand. And on the other hand, and looking back, it, it, it wasn't as tough. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I kind of grew up there, you know, even though a lot of the time I spent out in communities, I, I still spent, you know, a significant amount of time in D.C. and coming to the EPA as a student um, and, you know, meeting a lot of great folks who helped to you know, I often say they all helped raise me. It was the environmental justice <laughs> leaders, the civil rights leaders, and then those folks in the federal space, you know, really helped to, to, to help me to grow up. And um, so you saw over the years, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, and the evolution. Because when I first started working on these issues, you know, there were folks inside the agency who, you know, would say, you know, what these people are sharing in communities is not true. It's not happening. And some people would even say they were lying. Um, and of course there was an evolution over time where, you know, that type of thinking fell by the wayside and, you know, people, uh, began to get in alignment and doing the right things that were necessary. And, you know, fast forwarding to when I resigned, you know, there was a lot of prayer. There was a lot of talking to mentors and family, um, and then realizing also the way that I was raised, um, and knowing that. You know, uh, the person who was coming in to be the next president who had shared with us, he was very clear with the things that he was going to do. And there's a mm-hmm. famous quote that says that when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Um, right. So, you know, I, I looked at many of the things that they were proposing um, and I would pray about it. And I said, God, if this happens, then I'll leave. <laughs> and it happened. And then I said, well, God, maybe you didn't hear me right. I said, if this happens, <laughs> then I'll leave. Um, and a couple of things happened. And, you know, I, I thought, started thinking about all of the people I had worked with over the years and the trust that they had put into me um, to always be an advocate when necessary, uh, to stand up and push back in the spaces and places that they might not be. Um, and I also remembered the whispers in my ear from uh, elders you know, uh, early on when they embraced me and brought me in um, and telling me to, you know, make sure I really learn these issues, listen to what's going on in communities, um, and, and then to just always make sure that I held myself accountable. Um, and I remember those those voices. I remember, you know, those faces. Um, and, and I knew that I could not be a part of what these folks were you know, saying that they were going to do and what they were starting to move forward on. Everything from, you know, the policy stuff that they said that they were going to roll back. And uh, I played out in my mind all these scenarios of how communities had worked so hard for decades after decades um, and just getting the basic protections. And these folks were talking about taking those away. And then all the programs that communities had worked with folks inside the federal government to create to give just give them a chance. Um, and these folks were trying to eliminate them. So, you know, I tried to be respectful um, when I resigned and they tell me over a million people read my resignation letter. And I tried wow. to highlight um, for the new administration, you know, how critical um, these programs were, these resources were. And I shared with them also examples of how they had been used to make real change happen. And I had hoped that that would then inspire them to try and do the right thing. Um, And, and, you know, every new administration has their own sets of policies. I get that. I worked under both Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, But these folks, what they were trying to move forward on, and now over the last three and a half years, we've seen it play out, you know, literally we're putting people's lives in danger on a regular basis. Um, And I knew that that wasn't the way that I was raised and that I could not be a part of it. I could have very easily, 
you know, have taken another position in the agency. And somebody came to me one time right when I had left and they said, well, why didn't you just, you know, go over there and, and put your head down for the next four years? Um, and, and then, you know, if a new administration comes in, you know, then, you know, re-engage. And I just looked them in the eye and I was like, the folks that I've tried to serve, they don't have one day for you to take a step backwards, let alone for four years. Um, and I just hope that I'd bring a little bit of attention and, and, and save some of the programs that they were talking about getting, uh, you know, get, uh, doing away with. And we were blessed that the Office of Environmental Justice is not the national program office that it once was, but it still exists. The, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the education, the, uh, you know, the Office of Environmental Education and a number of the other programs, you know, that we were trying to put a spotlight on. You know, there are still remnants and forms of, uh, of many of those programs. So they weren't able to get rid of the things that they thought that they were because of lots of people coming together, not just Mustafa. I want to make sure that I give credit and honor to all of those voices that were and continue to be a part of pushing back um, and, and holding people accountable, both in the legal system and just through advocacy. Um, and, uh, and now we're, you know, on the precipice of a new day. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, real change happen. Definitely. And I think one thing that, that you just touched upon that is so important and I think about quite often is the, the real life impacts of some of these decisions, right? For, for many, the rollbacks of EPA rules and the rollbacks this administration has engaged on, I think we're up to more than 100 now, are just that, right? They are headlines that come in and then go away. But for the communities that are most affected and that have, as you said, fought for years or decades to get these level of protections, they are a matter of life and death, right? I think today... We just saw the news of the opening of, of sacred land in the Arctic refuge to oil and gas drilling. Um, and those are things that too many of us will be very far away, as are many climate and environmental news. So I'm, I'm just curious, how would you speak of the real impact of these rollbacks and the kind of chipping away of environmental protection that we have seen over the past four years and how they translate to impact the lives and livelihoods of our fellow Americans and people around the world. Yeah. Well, you know, I just believe in real talk. Some people won't give you real talk (laughs) because they're worried about their next job or whatever it might be. I just believe in telling folks like it really is. And I hold this administration accountable for many of the lives that have been lost to COVID-19, especially coming from our sacrifice zones uh, in our most vulnerable communities. You know, anytime you are pushing more pollution into these communities, then you are literally, uh, you know, creating or expanding uh, those folks who have chronic medical conditions everything from liver and kidney disease to lung diseases to cancers. We know the cancer clusters that are across our country uh, and that has a strong tie uh, to the burning of fossil fuels and some of the other toxic chemicals that people are being exposed to. Um, So please, for your listeners, uh, know that these folks know the numbers. They know how many people are dying prematurely every year from lots of different toxic uh, exposures. We got 100,000 plus people who are dying each year from air pollution in our country. If you know that and you're rolling back all these air protection laws, then that says something um, about your mentality and it says something about the policies that you're willing to move forward on. And it also says something about the value that you place or do not place on the lives of African-Americans and the lives of Latinx brothers and sisters and indigenous brothers and sisters and low income or lower wealth white communities and Asian and Pacific Islander communities as well. Um, And, you know, rolling back stuff that industry doesn't even want you to do. And they said, please don't recently with the methane rule. And we know that methane is will warm up the planet even faster than carbon does. Um, But yet, you know, industry says, administration, please don't do this. Administration still goes forward on it. Clean car rule, same thing. Our water quality, you know, all these rollbacks that have been going on there 
also causing and putting people in harm's way. Um, so, you know, they're very clear in many of the things that they are doing. They know the science, even though they are science deniers. Um, and, and they also, they just make a calculation of, you know, profit um, and, and trying for that small percentage of folks to, to continue to try and push profit, even in industries that they know um, are not our future. Um, and, and they refuse to invest in our future. So that's why we have to get engaged. That's why we have to get engaged in the civic process. That's why we have to continue to speak out and hold uh, people who don't want to do the right thing accountable. Absolutely. Um, and and that's also why I'm so grateful for, for your work. And this conversation has, has truly been such a gift. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. I can't believe it's already uh, been 45 minutes, but this has been invaluable. Um, so thank you so much for, for being here and for sharing all of this. I very much look forward um, to share this conversation with, with our listeners and as far and wide as we can. Well, thank you for everything that you continue to do. Thank you for the Cool Earth podcast. I like that name. That, that's a cool name. Um, you know, we can win on on climate change issues. We can address this climate emergency that we find ourselves in. But it's going to take each and every one of us, um, both on the personal level, um, you know, not just making sacrifices, but also thinking in a very innovative way uh, about the roles that we can play um, and and holding our government and others accountable. We can we can win on these issues. Definitely, and I'm so excited uh, for everything that that lies ahead and all of the people committed to making these changes. Well, I'm right there with you, <laughs> Mustafa. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you, sister. Be blessed <laughs> as well. Bye bye. Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris, and me, Maria Virginia Olano and it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash X-C-H-A-N-G-E dot org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time.